Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Today, we're going to share with you our conversation with Craig Johnson, the Executive Director of the Streamline Sales Tax Governing Board. We talked with Craig about the accomplishments of Streamline since 1999 and cooperation among both participating and non-participating states. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it and the opportunity to get the word out about Streamline and talk a little bit about what we've been doing. Right. So on that note, can you just kind of give us just the high level, what is Streamline and kind of the elevator pitch for it? Sure, sure. So when you think about Streamline, I tell people think about ways to make things easier and simpler for sellers and not just remote sellers. So many people have been focusing on remote sellers. Streamline focuses on all sellers, whether you're in-state businesses, brick and mortar businesses, or remote sellers. Um, our organization was put together as a, as a partnership really with the, the business community and the state tax administrators, the state legislators, and trying to find ways to address the undue burdens that, that businesses face that result resulted in Quill and the National Bellis Hess decision saying, hey, unless they have a physical presence, you can't uh, require them to collect our tax. So we recognized there was uh, there were some issues and some burdens that were placed on businesses. They were going to be required to collect tax and we needed to address those. And so that was what Streamline was originally, originally set up for. And that was what our goal was, was to work with the business community, understand what those concerns are, and then find solutions to it. And then ultimately resulted in the, the development of the Streamline Sales and Use tax agreement. And then didn't that happen like way back when? I mean, I really seriously, when I pivoted into this career 26 years ago, I thought maybe I'm making a mistake going to sales tax because of streamline. And then here I am 26 years later and I still have a career because it's still not as easy as I wish it was. But right. I mean, that was really the hope, wasn't it? Right. It really, you know, really started when you look, I mean, 99 and 2000 is yeah. when Streamline really kicked off. And it was really with the National Governors Association, National Conference of State Legislatures, and working with the tax administrator saying, hey, we got to do something about this. We got to make things easier. And, you know, the, at one time, and when Streamline first started, people referred to it as, uh, you know, they wanted to get to the zero burden sales tax so that there was absolutely no burden. And, you know, we obviously haven't gotten to zero burden, um, but we have made, at least in our member states, we've made significant improvements and significant strides in, in making it easier for businesses. Well, and over that kind of 20, over 20 year existence, what are some of those major accomplishments of Streamline? Well, when, when you think about the accomplishments of Streamline, you know, I kind of think about them in, in two categories, kind of the broad ones and then the, the more call it micro or narrower focused accomplishments. And when you start talking about the, the broad accomplishments, which is where I'd like to start, I guess, would be our role with, with respect to the, uh, to overturning the, the Quill and the National Bellis Hess decisions and our role in the South Dakota versus Wayfair decision. And, you know, when, what states were seeing, and this is you know pre-Wayfair, we didn't know when this was going to happen, but we're seeing you know all this growth in e-commerce. We're seeing brick and mortar stores that are facing an unlevel playing field, and they're trying to compete with remote sellers. We had to find a solution 
to put together a way to efficiently and effectively you know, calculate, collect, and remit the sales and use taxes, or, or quite frankly, the sales tax was not going to continue to be a reliable revenue source for the states. States were seeing with that growth in e-commerce, they were seeing their sales tax revenues flatten. They were seeing their sales tax revenues in some cases, especially at local jurisdiction levels, they were seeing them decline. And our, our states, when they got together with the business community, it was kind of the, if you build it, they will come. If you can figure out a way to make it easy for sellers to calculate, collect, and remit your tax, they're going to voluntarily come forward and do it. And of course, they're, they were the naysayers. People saying, ah, it's never going to happen. People are never going to voluntarily collect and, and things like that. But by the time the Wayfair decision came about, Streamline had developed the Streamline Sales and Use Tax Agreement. We had 23 full member states that had enacted all of the simplification and uniformity provisions. We had an associate member state, Tennessee, who had done some of the things, but not, not all of them to, to achieve full, uh, full membership. And at that point in time, again, we already had about 3,000 sellers that had voluntarily come forward and they were, they were agreeing to collect in all the member states. So it was a, if you can build it, they will come. And our partnership with the business community was really the key to getting that first accomplishment, which was the completion of the agreement itself. Multi-state businesses, they know and they knew where the pain points were. They knew the challenges that they were facing. You know, states and, you know, and I'll, I'll put myself, myself in this category because I worked for the Wisconsin Department of Revenue for 20 plus years before I came to, to streamline. You know, we didn't really have, I don't believe, a true appreciation for all the various nuances multi-state businesses faced. We knew our laws inside and out. I knew our laws inside and out. And quite frankly, expected multi-state businesses to know them just as well. But while we're focusing just on our laws, multi-state businesses, they're trying to do this and they're focusing on every state's laws that they're operating in. And, and I think that Again, as part of our accomplishment, we now as states have a much better understanding and appreciation really for what multi-state businesses face and uh, the, the challenges that they have. At the same time, I think the reverse is true. These multi-state businesses also now have an understanding kind of what the state tax administrators were facing and the challenges that they were facing. Uh, I don't think there were any tax administrators who were necessarily saying, hey, our law is perfect. Our law is really simple. But they were willing to sit down at the table with the businesses, really listen to what they say, wipe the slate clean and say, let's figure out if we started over, what would we do to make this uh, as easy and simple and uniform as possible so that we can... Again, remove those undue burdens, get the uh, get the Quill decision, get the National Bellis Hess decision overruled. So, when when Wayfair did finally come along, you know we're ten years into Streamline already. Um, Streamline became effective October first of '05, and now we're talking you know 2016 when the Wayfair decision or Wayfair case first started in mm -hmm. in South Dakota. We had ten years of experience in implementing the Streamline Sales and Use Tax Agreement. And I still think, and when you go back and if you read and reread the opinion of the Supreme Court and their references to what South Dakota had done in removing the undue burden, or that in their words, appeared to be designed to remove the undue burdens on interstate commerce, they pointed to their membership in Streamline. They specifically listed out a number of the requirements that are contained in Streamline. So I think from, from a global perspective, that's probably one of the most, if not the most, and the most important accomplishment that Streamline 
that Streamline's accomplished. Now, we've done other things as well. I mean, our, our central registration system is something that, you know, we developed back in 2005. We let sellers kind of be able to come in and register. Uh, we had, a, you know, it was somewhat of an archaic system, but, but at the time it was a way to make it, make it easier for selling or for registers to seller to register. So when you look at, at the sellers before Streamline, before that central registration system was adopted and, and enacted, a seller had to go into every state system, fill out a separate application, try to figure out, okay, what do, what does this state want for me to register? Yeah. And then even after they did it, how do they know that they're, you know, that they're actually registered in it? So what we wanted and, and really what we needed, we needed to make it easy for sellers to be able to register in all the states in one central location. And we wanted this to apply not only to those out-of-state businesses that are making sales into the member states. But even our own in-state businesses, we wanted any seller to be able to use it. Um, and, and from my perspective, when we updated our registration system in 2015, 2016, you know, my team and I, along with uh, our member states, you know, really asked the question, what information does a state really need to be able to register a seller? And we wanted to require, you know, and this might sound terrible, but we wanted to require as little information right. as possible. Agree. They yeah. ask so much. I mean, I, I joke about Pennsylvania wanting your firstborn child. I mean, it's <laughs> nine pages long. Like, how do you even like know 18. that business? Oh, is it 18? It's, I mean, it's just it's crazy long. how many questions and then you got a tire tax and then whatever in Ohio. You're like, shoot me now. I don't I don't know why you're asking all this, right? You're like, it's, it's onerous. It really is for the unknown. And there's a lot of that going on right now. A lot of people don't get why are they asking this question? Do I need to answer? It's a government. Mm -hmm. Of course I should answer it. And it's like, you're kind of asking and answering things that may not be relevant to your business. So correct, it is correct. very challenging, I think, for the unwitting to go forward and do these registration documents. Yeah. And from our perspective and the way we have it set up, you know, if, if our member states want or they need more information, mm -hmm. then the, the onus is on them to reach out to the seller and say, we would like this additional information. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of the seller having to weave their way through every state's application. And, you know, we knew the, the registration system was important, but what really stuck out to me, um, we had a former state tax administrator, had been very involved in Streamline, left Streamline, went to work for a, a private law firm. Oh. And when he went to work for them, they handled sales tax for their clients. And what he did is he he contacted me after he'd been he'd been gone for probably a couple of years, and he kind of gave me the story about one of their clients. They had to register him in just about every state with a sales tax, so streamlined states and non-streamlined states. And he said they went through the process. You know, they knew for the non-streamlined states they're going to have to go to each state's registration system, so they did that. You know, and they would start on one state, and they think they have everything. They move to the next state, and then they'd find oh that state wants something different, so then they go back and do that. So over the course of time, they get registered in all those all the non-member states. He said, then we went to the streamlined system and we registered for the remaining 24 states. And they said, is this as it turned out, <laughs> this particular client needed to register in every one of our states. Right. And and they said it was almost as though, what's the catch? <laughs> because because we we filled out one application, we put in our name, we put in the FEIN number, we put in uh, the address, address, the contact. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what they put in. And then we went down and we checked the boxes for all the states we wanted to register in. Now, this because this business hadn't operated, it was a, basically a new legal entity, they had to register in them all. But 
if they had been registered in even a few of the states, there's a spot, all they do is check a box and say, hey, we're already registered in that state. So our states don't set up duplicate registrations. We obviously don't want to cause that either. But he said, then the other thing was, after they registered in the non-member states, and and Judy, I'm sure you probably run into this, you register a business and you sit and wait. How long do you have to wait before you actually get notification from the state that you're registered? It depends. And if you're already starting to collect sales tax in that state, you're wondering, okay, am I collecting before I even have a permit? Yeah, I've sent the mm-hmm. application in. Mm-hmm. So with our system, you click the submit button and you immediately are given your SST ID number. It applies for all 24 of our member states or all the states that you selected to be registered in. And they will then follow up with their own information. But all of our states recognize that once you've submitted your streamlined registration, you are registered in that state. You are free to operate. And I'm sure, I mean, smaller businesses in particular, probably one of the last things they think about as they're mm-hmm. starting their business is sales tax collection. Yep. And all of a sudden they're ready to go. And then they go, oh, you need to register for sales tax. Mm-hmm. And some of them say, well, you can't start selling in that state until you get your registration. Well, how long does that take? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're able to get that uh, to them immediately. And I think that that is a, that is a huge benefit. And, you know, there have been, there have been people that said, well, yeah, but you can't use it if you're not in a streamlined state. And said, no, you can use if you're not in a streamlined state, but you're going to make sales into any one of our member states, you can still register through streamline. So there's some of those misconceptions that are out there too that you know, we really want to get people beyond. You know, For example, Judy, your folks sitting in Colorado saying, well, streamline may be great, but we can't do anything because we're in Colorado. Yeah. Well, for all the transactions outside of Colorado, you can certainly take advantage of Streamline if it's if they're in any one of our member states. So we so you could do the it. registration, is what you're saying, is for all those other states, and then do the separate ones. Because I I think for me, you know, you've been involved in this organization a long time. You've been in state government a long time. Why aren't the other 22 states playing ball? Right? We got 46, <laughs> 46. Of course, I'm counting DC as a state, even though we know it's yep. a district. Why are they still? And of course, as I look at it with my clients, and I'm always weighing, mostly it's because a lot of the software companies are pushing Streamline as a way to lower your costs of compliance and also the software because they're CSP provide. I think they're CSPs. And so I'm always like, okay, well, push pull of that is you lose some control because they're the CSP and they're, they're the vendor of record and you are not. So there's some challenges there. And then you have to follow the rules and you can't hire anybody in the States. You can't have traditional nexus. So it inhibits business operations, but that's not really what you're doing, right? You're saying this is this portal. You can get in these States. But then if I look at the population of the U S the only largely populated state in the system is New Jersey. The rest of the States, the big States, Florida, California, Texas, New York, Colorado, of course, because we're crazy um, with our home rules, are particip- they're participating, but they're not, they still haven't gone on board 20 years later. Why? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> they don't I, I was- like money. Yeah. Well, you know, that that's a good point, Meredith. I mean, I, one of the things that I do is I do track the, obviously the revenues that our member states yeah. receive. They re, it's, it's self-reported by them to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I have to rely on their information and, and I can tell you our states are seeing significant, uh, significant revenue from sellers registered through Streamline. But, you know, as far as why other states aren't participating, you know, I mean, different states obviously have, have different reasons, but when I think back to Streamline and when it started, you know, the, Think about the challenge of trying to get one state 
to make a particular change in how they handle an issue. And like now rounding? multiply. Rounding? <laughs> I remember rounding was a huge issue. <laughs> Round, rounding still, and interestingly enough, rounding still is an issue for some of the states, which not our member states. <laughs> But you multiply that challenge by 23 or 24, if you, know, if you include Tennessee in there. And you know we were at least successful in finding solutions that we could get 23 states now to fully enact and to move forward with. And you know the, the thing is, the simplifications and the uniformity, it required every member state to make changes. Right. You know, some of them were significant. You know, some people moved from origin-based sourcing to destination. Yep. That's a huge change. Mm-hmm. When you look at, you know, Washington State's a prime example of that. They still have some, I think, some streamlined payments that are made from the state to the some of the municipalities because of, of joining streamlining and going from origin to destination. But but that's that's huge. You know, other states had some. I'm going to say less changes that they needed to make to to participate. Now, no state that you know that I'm aware of, at least, was doing everything perfect. Mm-hmm. Nobody was able to say, "I'm joining Streamline. I don't have to change a thing." No, that didn't happen. Everybody yeah. had to make some changes, and you know, I, I think that right now, I mean, our member states they don't want to put sellers in any type of a gotcha type position. Mm-hmm. They want to make things simpler. They want to make things easier. I don't think any of our current states look back and say, oh, I wish we would never have joined Streamline. You know, the states are, are continuing to do that. They're maintaining their compliance. Um, we continue to review legislation that states are proposing mm-hmm. just for the purpose of saying, is it in compliance with Streamline? Um, the states are very concerned about that. They want to make sure they want to do everything they can. And, and I think that's, I mean, that's great because it sh- really shows the businesses operating in those states that those states do want to make things uniform. They do want to make things, make things easier. Well, that's why we went to destination in Colorado with Wayfair way back in 2018, even though we'd always done location and common reporting for just, you know, for it was not origination, but really citusing for our statutory cities and counties sure. of Colorado. So we took that big leap to say, well, we're going to destination, which people kind of freaked out about, but that was to get in conformity with Streamline as well, to say we have a uniform system based on destination, you know, kind of putting the seeds in place. Because, you know, now we're going towards the home rule being registered Mm -hmm. at the state, which Arizona did quite a few years ago. And that has made a lot of those cities a lot of money because it's all in one place. Just get the rates and then you can tax. It's not of course, as easy as I'm saying, but it is easier. And I know Arizona has just reaped a huge benefit financially from streamlining their sure. cities. So hopefully we'll see that same benefit in Colorado and then yeah. I'll move forward. But, but but still back to the question. So you think that's why California, Colorado can, I understand because of our constitution, our home rules, we can't, you know, we can't agree to certain things that are going to mm-hmm. jeopardize that. That's problematic within our, our state legal system. But what about the other states? Texas, why? Well, so I think some of them, you get into the, the uniform state and local tax base requirement. I mean, there's a number of states that, hey, they tax something at the local level, but they're not taxing it at the state level or vice versa. And I just, I, I can't get past the fact that how do you expect businesses <laughs> to be able to do this in multiple states. You know, pre, pre-Wayfair, before any state could require them to collect tax, it was easy. Ah, we, aren't, we just aren't going to collect the tax. Mm-hmm. But now they want them to collect the tax. I, I think that they're going to, you know, they're going to need to create that uniformity. Um, you mentioned the rounding rule. And, yeah. you know, to me, that's, uh, 
it's simple math. You round it out, you go three decimal points, and anything that's 0.5 and up, you round up. Anything that's point below 0.5, you round down. That seems simple, right? <laughs> you can you can program that. But interestingly enough, some states, there's a huge fiscal impact. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw fiscal impacts between 10 and $30 million for rounding. Crazy. Rounding. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you get into the the uniform definitions, and states states want to do things different ways, and and many times it, it quite frankly it's the business community saying, hey, look, we want a specific exemption for this, or we want an exemption for that. Well, Streamline developed the uniform definitions, you know, in conjunction with the business community, and saying, okay, how do we define this? We want clear, bright line, you know, definitions, and you know, you think about something like like candy. <laughs> That uh-huh. was something that took a long time for, for Streamline to define. But before Streamline, every state had their own definition of, of candy. I think back to Wisconsin, it was like a, a sweetened preparation of something, something, you know. And it made it sound like you could fit honey glazed ham into candy. <laughs> well, sure. obviously, that you didn't want to do that. I mean, that wasn't yeah. the intention. But now, by having a uniform definition, if you're a multi state seller, multi state retailer that sells candy, you know that's what what's candy in Wisconsin is also candy in any one of the other member states. Right. Now, what we aren't doing is we don't tell the states you all have to tax or exempt it. We right. just say everything is candy. So then when a, a seller is programming this, they can say, okay, candy, this is candy, this product falls within candy, this state taxes candy, this state exempts it. You can turn those tax flags on or off. That makes it, I'm going to say, much, much simpler for the sellers. So so the definitions are definitely part of it. And and then state sovereignty. You know, states want to be able to do what they want to be able to do. And we are trying very hard to you know walk that fine line of where does simplification and where does simplification and state sovereignty, where's the ideal spot for them to meet? Yeah. Every time you make things simpler and more uniform and require more uniformity, you're theoretically taking away from from state sovereignty. But if the businesses that are operating, and again, with it applying to both your brick and mortar sellers mm-hmm. and your remote sellers equally, it's making it easier for all of them. And, yeah. and I think that the business community has certainly appreciated, you know, where we've had that that uniformity. And and we've been able to where where states needed something special, you know, we've created some toggles in conjunction with the business community because, you know, quite frankly, some of the business community says, "Hey, no, we'd prefer, you know, even though the state maybe wants to tax." And I'll use the, uh, the one of the latest amendments to the agreement. We amended the definition of candy so that a state can exclude dried fruit that is sweetened. Normally, that would be candy. In this case, it was it was Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Cranberry Growers Association, and they came to us and they said, "Look, you know, we want to be able to exempt cranberries that are dried and sweet, the craisins, <laughs> and and yet we we don't want to have to lose all the revenue from the candy." We worked with some state legislators. We worked with the tax administrators uh, in Wisconsin. We worked with the Cranberry Growers Association. Got the business community together and developed a definition. So we created a toggle. So a state can exclude those things, but they still have to at least be transparent and indicate that now on their taxability matrix. 
So that's just so funny to me because when I think about sales tax, which I think so many people don't pay attention to, if you go to the grocery store, we know food for home consumption is typically exempt in a lot of states under the WIC standard or whatever. But you're like, well, what's food for home consumption? Craisins versus potato chips, right? Candy versus you're eating at home, but is it a really little, food? A little pot of like deli thing versus a pint of soup. Like, what are you going to eat right now versus can you eat, sing, consume it in one sitting? But on your invoice, it's all lined out. You might have bought pens and pencils for your kid's school or folders. You don't know the taxes collected on what. Right. So you, you just see the Costco. number at the bottom. So it's interesting that they would lobby it for it because I don't know that the buyer even goes and says, oh, that was taxed or not when they buy their craisins because it would be a one-off purchase where they really notice it and it's not material. So I think it's interesting they would lobby for that. But it also could be a marketing thing, right? Like here you is, put some craisins on your salad. Yeah. It's, you know, it's fruit or whatever. But then it's like, oh, well, no, it's not. It's, it's candy. A, I don't know if the dried banana, you know, coalition is, you know, put dried banana, even though dried bananas have a lot of sugar in it. But, you know, like it, it could also be a marketing ploy. Like, I don't know. We do taxes. Who knows like what that back end rationale right. is. Yeah, I just think it's interesting how the industries push these things forward, which is how we have all these complicated laws. And there's one industry for good reason saying, well, don't treat me as candy. I don't want to get labeled as such and I don't want to get taxed as such. But no, none of the buyers probably even know, right? The I don't even know. I'm going to buy craisins because I like them. And because they're sweetened, I like them more. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No. And and from my perspective, you know, in the seat that I sit in, I look at it and I, I tell myself, okay, what you know, we want to create this toggle if that's what if that's what the industry and the business community wants yeah. to do. States are states are willing to do it because it does give them additional flexibility. Mm -hmm. My concern is making sure that it is so clear and so transparent so that a state can say this is what we do with it, and a, and the business community can look at it and go, okay, we understand now. Um, Wisconsin exempts this and you know, Minnesota taxes mm -hmm. this and they can indicate that on their matrix. If we can't get to, uh, you know, if it takes interpretation to figure that out, then to me, we haven't, we haven't done our job at Streamline. We need to make it clear. Well, you know, it's funny. I had a client years ago, convenience store, right? They're selling energy drinks. At this time, this is like 15 years, 10 years ago, how many energy drinks do you think there are? Like when I went to law school, it was Mountain <laughs> Dew. I won't lie, I didn't drink coffee. So I drink a lot of Mountain Dew, my caffeinated beverage of choice. I don't really drink it anymore, but I loved it and it got me through. But uh, you know, at that point, there must've been thousands of energy drinks, monster this, monster that. And the distinction in Colorado for whether or not this drink was ta uh, taxable or not was the labeling on the back. Does it a nutritional label or a supplement label? Well, we went to the grocery store and found two cans, different labels, same product. How are you supposed to set the skew up for that in your POS <laughs> system? So there is some problems with some of that, not your fault, but just as a taxpayer trying to enforce. They're like, I just want to say that monster whatever is taxable, but I don't know how they're going to label it, the manufacturer. So that was a funny little issue we had with the state of Colorado. And I thought, you know, you're putting a lot of onus on a vendor and you're exempting it if it has the right label or if it has milk or coffee in it. And some of these energy drinks do. So anyway, some of that I thought was just, and that's really driven by industry, right? What they're doing and how they're framing themselves. And they probably like the marketing level of nutritional versus supplement label as well. If it's nutritional, it's perceived differently than a supplement. So who knows? Well, but you also right. have to take into account, like 
like in that instance, in like food, like what is the FDA going to allow? So it's not just isolated to like what is what is the what's preferential yeah. treatment from a manufacturing perspective, but like what is the FDA requiring? Are you putting ginseng in it, which is a herb, which is a supplement, versus just caffeine? Which is <laughs> I mean, I'm totally making this up. I have no idea what the FDA but like you know there's you know i just want to stay awake while i'm driving from you know colorado to indiana but Mm -hmm. there's so many layers in order that have to happen in order to keep me awake right yeah we do work with like a cbd company some cbd companies it's a cannabinoid which is a non-thc supplement but sometimes the labeling has been very interesting because it's a newer product you know and so what is the right thing to put on here in terms of how you label it for your consumers so it was a really interesting issue because supplements aren't taxable in some states and they are in others and so you're like okay well how do i decide that and it's not prescriptive right you could just buy it over the counter you don't need a, a doctor's note for it so anyway, so those things I think get really layered and it's good to, like you said, to have transparency and a similar definition. And I wish we were closer to 46, right? Than the yeah. 24. It is good. We've got a place for people to start. Right. I do think a lot of places, if they're going to have a question and they're having issues, they can go to streamline and go, we should adopt this. If we're going to make any adoptions at all, because we know it'll create more clarity for the tax base. Yeah, and we do see that. We do see where states, when they're opening up their laws and they're looking at amendments, that they will look at streamline and I will get calls from them. There'll be non-members states and saying, you know, you did this, any any suggestions, mm-hmm. good, bad, are you thinking about making any changes to it, you know, things like that. And we'll have those conversations. And I and I think that that's 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 an important piece of streamline that even though it's, you know, again, 24 states, the other 22 mm-hmm. states are looking at it and they are adopting yep, adopting provisions and it's important. And 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 you've shown it would work. I mean I would just say after all this time it's it's proven itself out. It's working. We I'd like to see greater adoption in the larger states. Mm-hmm. Especially because they do represent, I mean, California, I just, I'm from California. I mean, I know that 30 freaking million people live there. So they do represent a 10% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. So they're maybe a little arrogant on that or a little confused. I'm not sure. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's a, you know, we, we recently put in a and adopted a resolution that would allow non-member states to participate with us. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with that or not, but mm-hmm. we so so we looked at it and we're in the same spot. First of all, Wayfair happens and Wayfair did not address the undue burden issue, right? It just said mm-hmm. this you can have substantial nexus without having physical presence. That was really it. Got remanded back to South Dakota. They said, you know. You guys, you know, it's remanded back to determine whether or not there's still any undue burden on interstate commerce. It gets settled, and you know, and that's where it, where it is. So that question still yeah. remains. That is a question that I think, you know, whether it's one of our member states or a non-member state, they're likely going to see a challenge on that at some point in time of of an undue burden. What constitutes an undue burden? And mm-hmm. so, what we're trying to do, and what we decide to do, is work together with the business community again and say, all right. What can we do with non-member states? Because we recognize for some states right now, the reality is it's a difficult political lift. It's too heavy of a political lift to try to get them to join Streamline as full member states. But we've got some pieces that, I mean, our own member states, businesses in our own member states that are selling into some of these non-member states, they're being expected to collect those taxes. Mm-hmm. And yet there's no simplification, no uniformity. So what can we do and what can we ask those other states to do that isn't, it doesn't go all the way of joining Streamline, but it takes advantage of some of the things that we have developed and approved, like 
participating in our central registration system, Mm -hmm. requiring them to put together a rate and jurisdiction database so at least a seller can put that in their system and say, okay, Mm -hmm. if it's this address, here's the state and local jurisdictions. If I don't have it, you know, I can go down to the five-digit zip, you know, that whole process. Open up the CSP program and let the CSPs and compensate the CSPs for providing the same services in those non-member states that they provide in our in, in our member states. And we want them to participate mm-hmm. with us because we believe that if we get all the states operating together and working under one contract with the CSPs, it's going to make it easier for the CSPs, obviously, to, okay, we got the same contract in all the states. It's going to make it easier for the states to say, hey, look, we're as a group, we can get this all done at, at, at one time. Um, with the CSP, so we we want them to to participate with us, you know, in the uh, um, in the CSP contract. We want them to provide the liability relief. That is huge for remote sellers in particular. I mean, you're in you're in Colorado and you're shipping products to me in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Do you really know the Wisconsin laws and what's taxable and what's exempt? And if no way, and, and, some, and, <laughs> right, and some people will say, "Well, I'll just collect tax on everything. Then I don't have to worry about it." Oh, you go ahead and do that, and you'll see yourself right Key now. Tom, yep, right? You, whether it's Keytom uh, or a class action, you're going to see probably see a lawsuit. So the CSPs, yeah. I mean, their systems are set up so they can do this in all the states, um, but but it's not it's not cheap either. And if we can have the states helping those businesses and compensating for it, to me, I think that's a that's a big issue of or a big way to help reduce and remove the undue burdens by offering those CSP services. Well, and then we got rid of that in Colorado, so now we're limiting you to like a grand as your vendor fee. I mean, I mean, there are companies remitting millions of dollars to the state of Colorado, and they're getting a grand for doing it. You got to be kidding me, right? The software. I mean, people pay a quarter million dollars just for software to collect sales tax in America, depending on the type of business. Not not everybody spends that much, of course. But I mean, the real costs of compliance are large. So the, the vendor fee and all that really doesn't compensate for the effort involved. So that right. I agree with you. We should man, choose to have more of that give back a little for the give-in. Right. Like Alabama's done. Because they gave a percentage of for people voluntary to collect it. And I would also say, even though the 24 states may not represent all of the population of the U.S., it does ease the administration. And so you are going to care about South Dakota when you might not have bothered before. Mm-hmm. You're like, why, why not add it in? I'll just, I'm setting up a system. I'm going to build based on ship due. Done. Taxes collected. Here you go, South Dakota. What's one more return? Right. I mean, I feel like at 11 returns, you got some time in that. Just collect. <laughs> it's like the incremental cost to go all the way is not that much more than the eleven. Sure, sure. Does that make yep, sense? Yep. Yeah. You know, and and if you have a CSP that's doing that for you on top of it, and and I'm sure Judy, yeah. you guys probably you probably work with some of the CSPs uh, with some of I your do. clients. I do. And 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 to me, that's a that's a great partnership because you you get a better understanding of what the CSP systems do and what your client systems do, and okay, which ones are going to integrate well and which ones may not be as you know as good as far as mm-hmm. an inter- from an integration perspective. So it's yeah. Well, I think that's also interesting in the CSP because you do give up some element of control, and the guarantee thing is really not that is what people think because in the end you've got to create the tax decisions, you've got to map things properly. That's on you. So if that's incorrect, even though they're remitting, 
if you're wrong, you're wrong. You're, this, you're still liable for that. The CSP does not protect you from that liability. And the other challenge with that is you're limited. You can't hire anybody in a state. You can't put inventory in a state. You can't put a location in a state. So you can't have a physical presence. So right. those things really depend distinctly on the business operations. And of course, now with COVID, people have become very agnostic about hiring. So that is, I think, problematic. So I've had some clients that have done CSP or SST and then they, and the CSP and then shoot, but they hired somebody in the state. And of course, at this point, you're like, what are you going to do about that? Pull out? Like, I don't even know what the states would do if they, if they're no longer comply, you know, comply, they're already in. Right. So I don't even know if the states really thought of that when a, when a business changes its operations. Cause that is, I've seen a huge uh, shift in that and people hiring, which I've always believed with, with Wi-Fi, right? You can work anywhere in certain professions, but we've been always like, nope, you come in the office, you got to see each other, you got to FaceTime. And that is hugely changing our world right. today. And we're hiring people all over the world. I mean, I have clients that have people in Canada that work for them. Like, who cares if the talent is there, we're going to hire. So that's going to change the footprint of some of that. So I think hopefully we'll get that figured out so that people don't have to pull out of the program because they hired somebody in a CSB Well, state. but I, I think that goes back to kind of like the central theme of what we've been talking about is, you know, and gee, I don't, you know, you can disagree with me on this, but like, I don't find that our clients, you know, some of them just don't like taxes altogether, but most of them are generally... I understand that this is a cost of doing business and I understand that this is what I need to do. I'm okay with doing it. Don't make it so damn hard. And so, yeah. and that's almost across the board with any tax type. You've got sales tax and then you've got, you know, if you're a pastor entity as a small business, you know, you get a sales tax license. You generally need to file an income tax return. So you've got non-resident shareholder withholding. That's almost impossible to administer and like keep track of and figure out what to do. So it's just like, if we can just make this easier people will comply and it goes back to you yeah. know Craig what you said like if you build it they will come if you make it if you make it easy people will comply right well and it's interesting so we we surveyed every one of our sellers that are registered we did this about probably about 6 to 9 months ago so we've had a lot of registrants okay. cuz we're we're adding 2 to 300 new sellers every month right now and we have been since since Wayfair so we're, we're, we're continuing to grow. So we're going to be surveying more of those newer sellers again. Um, but these some of these sellers were the ones that first signed up with the program back in 2005, 2006, and they've still been in the program. And we wanted to find out, you know, what do you think of the registration system? Are you using a CSP? Okay, what do you think? Is it good or bad? What about the work that Streamline has done? What else can we do? Probably the number one comment we got was, get the rest of the states. Don't don't necessarily so change what you're doing, but get right? the rest of the states. Get greater buy-in. Yep. Oh, I agree. And, and I think I that there are probably hundreds of thousands of businesses that probably are not in compliance today. <laughs> hundreds, well, darling. I think more like mil so when when do you remember when the MTC did that? What was it? An amnesty program for a bunch of states to get registered and all that good stuff. And it was like right after, before, wait, after, before. It was I can't primarily remember, before for the FBA, there. right? FBA sellers. Yeah. It well, was kind of. But it was still safe. So, yes. so, correct. So, but they said they got like under a thousand participants, which was phenomenal. And, but at that time, my understanding is there were over 2 million, <laughs> 2 million FBA sellers. Okay. <laughs> 
That has got to tell you there are millions of companies in noncompliance, and you just don't know about it because they haven't registered and they're scared to death to do right. this. Well, so what, that is the hurdle. And what's interesting is so then, you know, we pivoted from remote seller economic nexus to now requiring marketplace facilitators to collect. So those 2 million sellers, know, right? right? So now the states, many of them, I believe, think, okay, we've got the marketplace facilitator, facilitators collecting and remitting, but how many of those sellers only sell on a marketplace? Very few. <laughs> Thank Just you. FYI, <laughs> Thank that is my, what I learned by talking to companies. I'm like, and I actually thought it was interesting they even went down the marketplace pivot. I'm like, you got Wayfair. You don't need marketplace. I know. I felt like I was putting more of the onus on Amazon. Fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. You want to want to punish them and Etsy and eBay and some of these larger vendors. But these companies are going on their own too. Right. Like they're using that and they're using their own website, their own marketing. They're not relying on FBA. They don't want to be relying on FBA. Right. So they've doubled their license requirement. Yep. And it- yeah, and they're fine. And it's complicated to kind of get all the information. We have one client that we're trying to integrate. They're like, oh, hey, we did this. Like, oh, and then now we added AWS to sell our software through. Oh, now we're going to sell through Salesforce's marketplace. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, now we want to sell merch and we're going to like layer in um, Shopify. And we're just like, can you just pick one, please? <laughs> just one. Because we're still not up and running like, on the We web. want all the layers. Yeah. We want all yeah. the layers, though, because we want to get customers anywhere we possibly exactly. can. Exactly. And that's, a, you know, we, that's a, from my perspective, that's what I want a business to focus on growing its business. I don't want right. a business to focus on, I have to do my taxes, I have to calculate sales tax. Yep. Let somebody else, you know, do that. And, you know, you mentioned the marketplace sellers and the remote sellers and the mm-hmm. marketplace facilitators. And, you know, we just completed a disclosed practice. I don't know if, again, if you're familiar with this or not. Our, the business community and our member states got together and said, look, we've got all these remote sellers that are out there. Um, we got marketplace sellers that are out there. They're wondering, you know, when do I have to collect? When do I have to register? You know, do I, do I include my marketplace sales in my, my total sales when I'm computing the thresholds and trying to determine, you know, what's taxable, <laughs> what's taxable and what's not, or when do I have to register when I don't? So we put together these disclosed practices. There's about 75 questions that all of our states had to respond to this year when they did their annual compliance reviews that were due on August 1st that ask questions about their thresholds. How do you calculate it from the remote seller perspective, from the marketplace seller perspective, and from the marketplace facilitator perspective? We said, look, we want states, we don't care if your members are streamlined or not. This is important information for sellers to have to know and understand where they need to be collecting. Sellers want to comply. They, they're not they don't have any problem with it. It's no, I'm going to call it, it's no skin off their back if you make it easy for them and, and you make it so it's clear when they do or don't have to collect. So we put that out there and, and have that out there for all of our, our member states to, to complete or that have completed. Yeah. So I think, Craig, this has been a really great discussion. And so we're really, you know, again, thankful for your time. And it, I think it's also been really enlightening for me and Judy to kind of hear your perspectives. Thank you for sharing. And hopefully we can touch base again, in, you know, in a couple of years and see if we've gone up from 24. <laughs> Maybe we'll, well make I, Tennessee a full one. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that we will. I think that, you know, I, I think in the, in the course of, I, I, I give it maybe a couple of years. I think there will end up being some sort of challenge on undue burden. 
And that alone may encourage some states to look closer at whether it's Streamline or the non-member state option to participate in Streamline. But if we can get the business community to pushing some of the states that aren't members and saying, hey, take a look at this. We're more than happy to go meet with any of those states and explain, you know, what the, you know, what the benefits are of having them participate with us. And and I think the other thing is getting the word out. You know, I eat, sleep, and breathe sales tax. I tell people that all the time. Yep. <laughs> Wayfair, every people yeah. do. <laughs> We're the most popular people at parties. Yeah. What do you do? Oh, I do sales tax. Oh, I'm going to go over right. here. Yeah. I hear someone else more interesting calling. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, we think of, and I think of, it's like, how can people not have heard about Wayfair? But there are so many businesses that oh, don't yeah. know anything about it yet. And No, I just had a conversation with one yesterday. Like, Really? Yeah. I mean, that was in the New York Times, the Washington Post. Like, I've never seen sales tax front and center on every publication <laughs> known to man in my life, you know. And anyway, yeah, but here we are three years later and three years later. Right. Yeah, that's a interesting issue in and of itself as well. You're like, you're really late to the right. party. <laughs> well, and, you know, and I, and I would tell you, I mean, obviously you folks in dealing with all the different types of businesses that you deal with as well. If, if you, there are things that you think streamline, and again, <laughs> Jody, Judy, Judy, sorry, you, you know, you're in Colorado and I can't help you there. Um, but yep. if there are things that you look at and say, hey, these are things that if Streamline could address, it could certainly help my clients in other states. I mean, I think people that know me, know me well enough to say that, hey, look, I'm, I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to bring it to the governing board and have them consider it. I think some people yeah. uh, maybe on the governing board or in the states are saying, hey, you listen to business too much, Craig. Now, we, we yeah. have to listen to business. If we're going to make things easier, we have to understand from the people that are actually doing the work on a day-to-day -day right. basis, what's causing the problem, and then figure out what the you know, what the, the response is and work with them on, okay, what do we see as a solution that works from both the state side and the, and the seller side? Well, I mean, we, business is the government's invoicing engine. Like you're kind of being mean to your sales arm, right? Because, but for them, you don't have a job because there's no money coming right. in. Business is funding government. And so are we individually. So it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting issue of like the, you know, you understand the rules and they've been placed and people, you want to pump, protect the public fisc, but you also have to understand that that money came from someone else mm -hmm. and it needs to be administered fairly and evenly. And so that taxpayers can comply with it. Right. And the more complicated you make it, the more people just go, not doing it. I'll roll the I'll roll the audit lottery dice. Yep. Yep. Well, it's let's face it, sales tax is based on voluntary compliance by sellers. And if yeah. you don't want sellers to comply, make your law as difficult as possible because you're exactly right. They're gonna go, what am I gonna do? Um, you right. make your you make your law easy. And I like I say, if they build it or if you build it, they will come. And you know, that's what we want to, to continue to to push. All right. Well, in that spirit of collaboration, I think we'll end there. Thank you again, Craig. And this has been Saltivation. Until next time. All right. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.